this Friday evening, were you glued to the television like I was watching David versus Goliath? Did you know anything about that? It was the number 16 seed, UNBC, that's University of Maryland, Baltimore County, never heard of the school, versus number one overall, Virginia. Overall, number one in the nation. Coming to the game, everyone was picking Virginia to win. They're the number one team in the nation. And the first half ended at a 21-21 tie going into the second half. Virginia had to win. The number one seed in the college tournament for the last 33 years is 135 to zero. 135 straight wins for a number one seed. On Friday, it would change. UMBC went on a tear and never looked back. Virginia couldn't help but be beaten by the little guy. They got beat bad. They lost by 20 points. A huge upset. And the commentators said, David beat Goliath. Sports Illustrated said the next day in their online version said this, quote, this was a sports version of David and Goliath in a true sense. Virginia entered the game of, as uh, a 20 and a half point favorite and would lose by 20 points. He says, David felled Goliath with a rock to his forehead, but he also cut off the giant's head. Is this what the story in 1 Samuel 17 is all about? The account of David slaying the giant Goliath is a classic tale. One author, one commentator said this, the ingredients of drama and excitement, anticipation and satisfaction of the good guy defeating the bad guy against all odds is in 1 Samuel 17. David and Goliath has become the stock phrase for any little guy who takes on and defeats a bigger, stronger foe, whether it's in war or sports or business or politics. This story is famous. If you were to walk in the street and ask them about David and Goliath, they would know about this story. The world loves this story. They love seeing the little guy come out with the victory. They love to think of themselves as the little guy with this rah-rah attitude that I can do anything. And maybe this is how you think of the story. Do you remember what the story is all about? Let me retell it here briefly before we read it. It's about a boy, David. This is probably what you've heard at some point growing up. David, who's, who's relegated to, to the sheep out in the pasture. And there's a war going on with the people and the Israelites. And, and the war is with their nemesis, the Philistines. And David can't go. He's too young. He's too small to be at the battle. But his three older brothers are there. And so one day... David's father tells him that he needs to take some supplies to the battle lines for his brothers. And he goes. And when he gets there, he sees the men who are fearful. There's this big threat, Goliath. And he's been taunting the people. He's telling them to send out their man to come defeat him. But he's big, really big. Lots of armor and weapons. And no one wants to go. And David hears the threat and is motivated to go. He, he knows he can defeat this giant. But he's dissuaded from doing this by his brothers and the king. He's too small. He's too weak. He's too inexperienced. He, he's going to die. The odds are stocked against him. But David convinces Saul the king, and Saul wants him now to wear his royal armor. But there's a problem. He's a boy, and it's too big for him. That's what we hear, right? So David leaves this armor behind. He takes his sling and goes to the river and he gets five smooth stones. And when he arrives to the field, he's, he's again mocked by this giant Goliath, that he's too small, that he's pathetic. 
And David's not bothered. He grabs a stone and he slings it towards Goliath and he hits him right in the forehead and Goliath falls dead, killed by the boy. David runs up and chops off his head. Winner's spoil. That's it. Let's pray. Is that it? We can do anything we want. We can put our mind to. We can do it, right? Is that the story? Is that the point of the story? Just, just work hard. Ignore all the detractors. And take down the big enemies of your life. But think about this from the world's perspective. This is great. The world loves this. I can do it. Just go and do it. You don't have to listen to anyone. Don't, don't listen to those people. You make your own future. It's the American way. Just, just grit your teeth and go get it done, right? This is what the world wants to hear. We can overcome. We can do it. Just believe in yourself, right? You remember what I said a few weeks ago? You know, Satan doesn't whisper to you, believe in me. No, he whispers to you, believe in yourself. This is what the world's saying. You know, the world doesn't need to hear a message of self-reliance. You don't need to hear that message either. We need something better. We need the gospel. And what better place to see the gospel than 1 Samuel 17? It's there. I hope you see it. I've seen it this week. Kind of charged up a little bit this week as I read this story because it's there. We have the gospel right here at David and Goliath. It's a long passage, so we're gonna walk through this passage in four sections, and, I'll, and we'll, we'll read the section as we go along, give comments as I do, but before I do, I wanna pray, and so I would ask you to pray for me, and I'll pray for you, and we'll get started. Father, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you that we can come and gather together and to sit under the preaching of your word, and we ask that you would be our teacher. That you would teach your people. That you would guide them to understand what your word says. And that they'd be changed and convicted from what they hear. That they would leave differently than when they came in this morning. Show us again. Help us understand the gospel as we work, look and, and walk through for Samuel 17. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The first section I want to look at is the threat. The threat, and that's verses 1 through 11, the threat. And when we come to, to chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, we come to an important section of the history of Israel. There's a threat now for, the, for God's people, the, the Philistines, and, and they're going to keep coming. And, and the Israelites' failure to defeat the Philistines was simply because they refused to obey God. Had they truly believed God and fought the Philistines as God had intended, God would have driven them out. But they didn't. Remember, they wanted a king, just like the other nations. And so we come to the 17th chapter and we hear of the Philistines yet again and there's, there's this massive warrior that we're gonna hear about, Goliath. Look at verse one. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Hezekiah in Ephesdemin. These are fun words to pronounce, by the way. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up a line in the battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And so they gather here in the valley of Soka. It's a, it's a large valley with two mountains facing the center. 
And the valley itself would be a mile wide. So if both camps are on either side, it says that they would have been able to, to see each other in this battle. And so this is the scene. Verse four, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had his bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him. So, so Goliath comes out into the valley and the author gives us a full explanation of the threat to God's people. His name is Goliath. He is called the champion, which literally means in Hebrew, the man of the between. And we're gonna talk about that this morning in more detail. His city, he's from the city of Gath. We heard about this city in chapter five when the Philistines brought, up, brought the Ark of the Covenant into their camps. And, we, and the author then gives us his height. Goliath is a tall man. I, I can't imagine being as tall as Goliath. And I'm considered tall. He most definitely never flew on a plane because that would be miserable. And I'm sure he was always asked, so how tall are you? And I'm glad that I'm a wee little man compared to Goliath. The text says that he was six cubits and a span. And how long is a cubit? Roughly one and a half feet. And a span is nine inches. So if my math is correct, and you can tell me later if it's not, Goliath was nine foot, nine inches tall. He could block a basketball shot with his head. He's tall. And what did God say a chapter ago? Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature. Really? Even when he's this tall, we're not supposed to look at that? But that's not all the description we have. It says he has some armor on. He says he had a helmet of bronze in his head and his arm were the coat of mail and the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs. And, and folks, that's a lot of metal, mostly bronze. Remember that the Philistines had a monopoly of, of the metalworking of the day. His coat of armor would weigh, would weigh somewhere between 120 and 130 pounds, just the coat of armor. And he's covered from head to toe. He, he, he looks like he's unbeatable. And his weapon is a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. The, the javelin was more like a curved sword. The, the spear was incredible with the head weighing around 15 pounds. He has strong armor. He has strong weapons. But that's not all. He also has a shield bearer who went before him. He had a shield and it was so big that another would have to carry it for him. Who would stand and hold it in front of him. And he would stand there and holding the shield in front of Gath. Probably... Uh, the shield was the size of a normal Israelite, five and a half feet. Couldn't see the shield bearer, but you'd see the shield. And so why does the author give us so many details here about Goliath? Is he trying to fill his quota for the day of words? No, he wants to form an impression on your mind. He wants you to put yourself in their position now. This colossal character, Goliath. He wants you to know that he looks unbeatable. Do you see it? Because you need to see it. You need to understand this. Goliath is impossible to beat. He is larger than life. 
And how does he sound? What, what does he say? Well, in verses 8 and 9, he calls out the people to come out and fight him. They're, they're to send a man out, their champion. And the challenge is given. Verses 8, look at that. Verse 8 and 9. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out? Excuse me. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Am I not a Philistine? What, what he's saying is, this me, I, I am representing the Philistines. Am I not an embodiment of the Philistines? Now you, you send your representative. Send out your servant of Saul, your champion. Give me your man. Send out your best. And, and, and if you win, we will serve you. Yeah, right. He's lying. The section presents us with a common theme that we find in the scriptures, the, the enemies of God and his people. If you trace this theme throughout the Bible, you would see it time and again. The enemies of God continue to threaten the people of God. And all of us face an enemy, an enemy of enemies. As real and as powerful and as terrifying as Goliath, we, we face death. Death holds its terrible sword and, and waves it in front of us, mocking us threatening to, to bring us down. Satan seeks those that he may devour. We have an enemy much greater than this nine-footer in the valley. And we need a champion to battle for us. We can't do it. The enemy's too big. It's too powerful. We need someone. Well, this first section closes with Saul and his men's reaction there. It says, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Wasn't this Saul the one the people had cried for to deliver them from their enemies? <clears throat> this is the one they wanted, a king just like the other nations. But cast your mind back to 1 Samuel chapter 2 with the words of Hannah. She says, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. It doesn't seem like it's going to happen right now. The odds are stacked against Israel right now. What will God do? The power that stood against the people of Israel was, was terrifying to them. It would be astounding if anyone could deliver Israel from this incredible threat. In verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They couldn't see any way out. Is anyone able to defeat this enemy? Is there anyone? Well, let's move to the second section. The boy, the second section, verses 12 through 30. God is a God of the unexpected, is he not? God can be trusted and he will act in ways that will take us all by surprise. Who would have thought that all, this, all of the massive problems in our world would have, have their ultimate solution in the execution of a man on a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago? God is most definitely a God of the unexpected. And this story is no different. In, in the second section of the chapter, we're introduced to a boy, David, and, and he will speak to us. We heard about him last week and he saw his anointing, making him the king of Israel. Now in verse 12, now David was the son of a Ephrathite, 
of Bethlehem, Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Here we get to the family line of, of David and, and get the details of David's family yet again, of his father and his brothers who are now at the battle. If you remember, David is the youngest, the runt, keeping watch of the sheep. And at the battle, Goliath is coming out, threatening them for 40 days, day and night, 40 days. In verse 17, and Jesse said to David's son, take for your brothers ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. The parched grain, the, the cheese, the author gives a lot of details here again for us. David is to go and, and replenish their physical needs and bring back a report of how things are going. And we need to understand this is probably a trial for these men. To be at the valley for 40 days means that they're away from their job, taking care of the fields and the animals. This would be a challenge for everyone involved. And then verse 19, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went and Jesse had, as Jesse had commanded. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. So David obeys. He rises early and heads out with the goods for his brothers. And he arrives and he can hear the war cry in a distance. Well, the war cry probably wasn't, we got spirit. Yes, we do. We got spirit, how about, a few of you know this, good. It's probably not the war cry. David leaves the goods with the one in charge of the baggage and makes his way to the battle. He wants to see with his own eyes what's going on here. Remember, he's, he's a young man. He wants to be where the action is. In verse 23, as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard them. David heard them. This man, Goliath, is there and shouting his threats again, and David heard them. This is a turning point for the story. You need to realize this is probably the first time that David had heard his God mocked. Think of that. You are probably so used to hearing God mocked in the good old U.S. of A. You hear it so often that it just kind of rolls off your back. But David... He wasn't accustomed to this. It probably shocked him. Probably angered him. 
What did this man say about my God? When commentator Roger Ellsworth paraphrases Goliath's threats, he says, am I not a pagan, a God-hating Philistine? Then why won't any of your men of the living God, the living God, fight me? You must not really believe in your God at all. In fact, you must believe that a, a large warrior like myself is actually stronger than your living God when it comes to the battle. David heard it. David's bothered. He's bothered that God is mocked. Does it bother you? Does it bother you when you hear your God being mocked? Does it bother you? You know, it has a name. It's called blasphemy. We, we don't like that word much anymore. We, the world won't use it. The world causes it critical speech or a difference of opinion. Have we just grown accustomed to hearing God being mocked? College students going to class each day, you hear God being mocked. Those that work day in and day out, you hear from your coworkers God being mocked. Does it bother you? Does it affect you? There's other things here in the situation. Though. Do, we, do we really believe and trust in God? We are tested to either believe the world or believe God on a weekly basis. When, when trouble comes knocking on our door, will we trust God and believe in him or do we go along with the world? You can't handle this, just throw in the towel. God might be real, but he doesn't really care about you. You know, when financial crisis comes, just, just cheat. Just skim a little off the top. No one will really know. Your grades are coming and, and you know you're not doing well, so you have to pass this final. So. No one will really know if you cheat on the test. And when we succumb to these temptations, are we not mocking God? Just like Goliath is? And the issue is, do we really trust in a living God? Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see, the, the men are afraid and they're following the leadership of their, their king Saul. Where is he? Why isn't he around? He's, he's the champion, supposed to be, right? He's, he's supposed to go and defeat the Philistines. Where is he now? And the men here are, are spreading what it seems to be a, a motivation for the one that goes out and steps out into this battle, that they, they would get a reward. And, and what will he get if they go? And they say that for whoever goes out to the battle will get the, the hand of Saul's daughter in marriage. But that's not all. They're going to get a tax exemption. Free taxes forever. He probably thought, what's there to lose? He's going to die anyways. I might as well just give it out. And in verse 26, David asked the question of the men, what will come out for those that are in battle? I don't know if you recognize it. These are the first words spoken of David in this book. They're the first words of David in the Bible. 
What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And his first words are an interpretation of the challenge theologically. The whole situation from David's vantage point is about God. He sees as God sees. This man, this uncircumcised man, Philistine, is defying our living God. It's not about the the men or the army, it's about God. And he's thinking theologically here. David's silence is broken. He's bringing in the whole new worldview for the men here. Does serving a living God make any difference? And David's point is that we shouldn't ignore the trouble in our world or somehow discount the difficulty. We should always compare it to our living God. All of the believer's life and all of the church's life requires a theocentric thinking. And theocentric thinking, what is that? It's it's having God as the central focus. Now, we all have a God-centered thinking. I don't know if you recognize it, but everyone has a God-centered thinking. Everyone in the world does. The question is, which God? God of self or the living God? Do you have the right theocentric thinking of the living God? Is the God of the universe central to your focus in your life? Or if someone were able to read your mind and hear one of your words, would they be shocked that you serve a living God? Whether you hear doubt in God or trust in him. Verse 27, and the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. For you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from, his, from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. So we hear from David's brother, not just any brother, the, the oldest, the first one that was rejected a chapter before from being king. Do you remember Eliab? Here we have a rejected brother, the, the jealous brother, it would seem. He is angry, the text says. He's, he's going to diminish now the job that David has. Do you hear it in his words? Whom have you left those few sheep? Poor David. Who, who's doing your pathetic job of watching just a couple sheep out there in the wilderness? Why, why are you here? He knows that David is anointed. He, he was there. He's, it seems... Mad, frustrated that it wasn't him that was selected. And now he knows, at least he thinks he knows everything about David. Even his heart, he says. You know, the same debased imagination that treated Goliath as important now treats David as unimportant. This is Eliab. Eliab is Goliath. He is Goliath before Goliath. The giant will show contempt for David, but Eliab beats him to it. Eliab, who is in all of Goliath in, in the wrong way, was wicked in his assessment of his own brother, his, his own flesh and blood, and he treats him with scorn. 
he is most definitely affected by this giant. He, he sees man as man sees. He refuses to change. He won't look at men as God sees. It's sad, but true, there are still Eliabs in the church today. It shouldn't be this way, but so much of the opposition for the work of God is done by the people of God. And we hear it, questioning, why are we doing that? We've never done that before. We always do it this way. Why do we need to change? Those in the church that refuse to change, refuse to look at any different way of ministry become a roadblock like Eliab here. And as we see in this story, the real menacing giant is the unbelief of the people that God can do the work. Eliab is not speaking for God here in this moment. He's speaking for Goliath. Well, how does David respond? Well, like any younger brother would, he says, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? I like the NIV better. It says, can't I even speak? Come on, younger siblings that are here. Isn't that true? I'm the younger sibling. Can I even ask a question? David doesn't waste any more time with Eliab. He moves on talking to others to the group of men asking, why are you letting this man defy God? What's wrong with you? And in this you have David, the, the boy, schooling these men. And that leads us to the third section, the challenge. The challenge, verses 31 through 40. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. These words, David preaches to the men here. And what, what were David's words? First, he acknowledged that the God of Israel was the living God and they should take him serious. Second, he recognized that Israel belonged to God so they should trust him and not themselves. Third, he understood that the words of the Philistine were, were blasphemous to God. And this is serious for David. It bothers him. And fourth, David knew that this was a mere man. Goliath was, was not worthy to be feared. He was to be viewed in light of God. David wasn't thinking about himself. He's thinking about God. In verse 32, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. David comes before Saul and preaches to him. Saul, don't let your heart fail because of this man, Goliath. Don't be foolish to be scared of him. You serve a living God, a powerful God. And Saul, like Eliab and Samuel and Jesse, were looking with the eyes of men. They saw this giant man and they forget God. And David knows this about Saul because Saul has done nothing for 40 days, day and night. He's sitting. You know, David's words here, I'm sure, were outrageous to the ears of Saul. And frankly, they should be outrageous to us as well. Are you saying that a boy, a 15, 16, 17-year-old, I don't, know, I don't know how old he is, you can ask him in heaven, under 20, he, this boy is going to go against this giant of a man? Have you seen Goliath's armor? Have you seen his weapons? 
Have you heard him mocking us and taunting us? He's an experienced warrior. He's here for blood. He will take you down. He wants to take you out. And David's words here are unbelievable. Saul thinks the same. Verse 33, and Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. David, you're just a boy. You don't have experience. You don't have the ability to defeat him. This is foolish. Verse 34, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. David is quite a shepherd here. I don't know about you, and I did a little research, but I've never heard of a shepherd chasing down a lion or a bear. So if you've heard of it, please let me know. I'm not doubting that this happened. It just seems amazing. But not just chasing down the animal, but striking the animal in the mouth so that the lamb would be released. And and if the the animal, the, the lion or the bear, would rise up to kill him, he would grab him by his beard and then kill him. David is a serious shepherd. David's way of thinking is, this is a mere man. This is Goliath. And I'll treat him just like those animals out in the wild. And how did David learn to do this? It was in his pasture. You know, I said this last week. I ended with it last week. God has placed each and every one of you in a pasture. And he knows what he's doing by putting you there. The family that he gave you, the job that he gave you, all of it was on purpose. So how dare that we look to get out of it? It doesn't mean that he won't bring us a new job, possibly if the job we have is not the one that we desire, but it won't be until we learn to grow and to submit our lives under him where he has us right now. And he won't bring you a new family. So you need to learn how to love them and serve them. Don't despise the pasture that God has you in right now. Because you won't be ready for the next thing unless we stay and we serve him where God has put us. And David was ready for this challenge exactly because he was faithful to where God had him. And, And what's Saul's answer to this? Verse 38 And Saul clothed David with his armor and he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So David put them off and he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Saul was was fine with David going as long as he went with with Saul's plan. As long as he went with Saul's protection for battle. 
and he tries to equip David the same way that, that Goliath equips himself. And Saul wants him to wear the, the royal armor. And you might think that David would be impressed, but he's not impressed. Remember, Saul was a king like the other nations, so his armor was like theirs. David, though, as a king, wouldn't be like the kings of the other nations. He would be different. And David rejects the armor because it wasn't tested not because it wasn't, it was too big. I don't buy into the children's story there. But David was a different sort of king. He was a shepherd. He knew his tools and he would bring them along. Bring his staff and his sling with five smooth stones and his shepherd's pouch. He wouldn't trust in man's way. He would trust in God. And this leads us to the fourth section, the last, David and Goliath. Verses 41 through 58. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The battle is beginning. Goliath is moving closer. He probably can't quite see who has come out to face him. And when he sees him, he's not impressed. Verse 43. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Goliath doesn't feel that they're taking him seriously. He sees as man sees. And he blasphemes God. He does this by his gods. Do you remember his gods? It's Dagon. Do you remember Dagon? Chapter 5, we'll get to that in a moment. Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. And when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. You notice David never sticks up for himself. Why? Because it's not about David. It's about God. You see, Goliath had committed a capital crime here. He had insulted and blasphemed the God of Israel. According to the Torah, any individual guilty of blasphemy, even a non-Israelite, would have to be stoned. Look at Leviticus 24, 10 through 16. Maybe... I'm not sure. Maybe this is the reason why David selected stones for the battle. Of course, it's also because he was very proficient in this. But this giant needed to be stoned. So he's going to serve God by bringing judgment to Goliath. And David's approach to Goliath was theological in nature. He comes in the name of the Lord. He doesn't have confidence in himself. He trusts in God. And so this story isn't about power of David. It isn't about the little guy. It's not about the underdog. It's not about how we can have courage or how we can be bold or how we can be brave or, or be confident. 
This is a story about how God rescues his people. He saves them. Remember, they wanted a king just like the other nations. They wanted to save themselves. And now here is their opportunity. And where's their king? He's cowering in the corner, unable to do anything to this threat. And they need a rescuer. They need a champion. Remember earlier, champion means in the Hebrew, the man of the between. They need someone to stand between them and the enemy. And David is that man. And it's taken 48 verses to get to the climax of the story. And here it is, verse 49. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. David used a deadly weapon. After whirling the sling around his head, David released one loop that sent a tennis ball-sized stone two or three inches in size at a speed of 100 to 150 miles per hour at his head. And Goliath falls. And just the same in 1 Samuel 5, do you notice how he falls? Just like his God, Dagon, on his face. Verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. They don't stay as Goliath promised that they would. David, after killing him with a stone, needs to use Goliath's own sword to cut off his head. Verse 52, And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout to pursue the Philistines as far as Gath, and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shara-im, as far as Gath to Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it into Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. The people pursue the Philistines, able now to defeat and plunder their camp, and David brings the head back. Verse 55. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. I don't know, I don't have a good answer. I don't know why exactly Saul is asking who, who David is as if he doesn't know him. And maybe there's a lot of people he has to keep track of. Maybe he's just getting old and his memory's bad. I, I, I don't know. It's probably because he wants to know the family of the one that will marry his daughter. He wants to know the family of the one that's gonna get the tax exemption. Saul will need to make good on this promise. And with that, friends, that's the end of chapter 17. Now this world and many churches preach this passage differently than I have and how I am. Many, in fact, maybe this is how you've read it in the past, you're, you're reading it and you're thinking, who am I in this story? 
trying to figure out which person you are in the story. You shouldn't be Goliath, even though he does resemble so many of us, in that he's confident in himself, confident in our tools. We shouldn't be like Goliath. Some of us are like Eliab. We don't have the eyes to see when God is doing something in our lives, in our churches. And when someone wants to step out in faith, we're quick to point out all of the reasons why they shouldn't. But maybe most think, I need to be David. And friends, don't do that. Don't do it, because if you think that you have to be like David, it will just lead you to a spiritualized version of Goliath. Now, don't think of yourself as Goliath or David or Elab. Look deeper into the story. You and I are the Israelites. You and I are the people on the sidelines. We're the ones afraid. We're scared. We're unable to move. This is more realistic, isn't it? You're not David or Goliath. You're the people unable to do anything. Now think about it with me. What does God give to frightened people? What does God give to fearful people? And I'm going to say it and then I'm going to explain it. God doesn't give scared people an example. No, God gives fearful people a champion, a savior. He doesn't deal with our fears through inspiration and, and emulation. He, he, dear, he deals with our fears through substitution and imputation. David is not an example for the Israelites. He doesn't come and say in the story, hey guys, here's an example how you should follow. Follow this process, guys, and it'll be, it'll be good. Just follow. He doesn't do that. He's not an example for us. He's the champion. He's the savior. He's the deliverer. And David is not the one the world would choose. He, he is viewed as weak. He, is, he doesn't have any military experience. He doesn't have any military hardware. And, and you might say that he won in spite of that because he's the underdog. No, he didn't win in spite of his weakness. He won because of it. He is exactly the one that God would choose for this. Remember in chapter 16, David wasn't there for the selection because he was small and, and ruddy and young. He was out working in the fields with the sheep. He, he wasn't the king material. But through all the experiences, he was exactly the one that God would choose. It's through his weakness that he saves his people, not in spite of it. And David is their savior. He is their substitute, the man of the between. Did you catch it in verse 32? Did you catch it? And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. It's substitution, friends. He's a representative. Remember that Goliath was called the champion of the Philistines and he was calling forth the champion of the Israelites, both to send out the representative, both to send out the one that would save. And David was now the legal representative of the people. If he won, the people won. If he lost, the people lost. In other words, he, he, he was not just fighting for them, he was fighting as them. 
And this is huge for understanding this passage. Do you see how this applies to us today? David came out as a representative for God's people. God didn't select an example. He gave them a savior. He doesn't intend to save them through inspiration, emulation. He saves them through substitution and imputation. Do you see Jesus in the story? You remember Hebrews 11 and 12 in the New Testament, the list of all the Hebrews? And you remember how it goes through and says, remember, we need to remember Noah and Abraham and Moses, and he even says David. And then he says, but we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. Remember David, but fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He says, look at David, but fix your eyes on Jesus. He is our champion. And David here is pointing us to our champion. Jesus Christ saved us not in spite of him being weak, but because he was weak, because he died, because he was tortured, because he was killed. And he took our punishment. He took the punishment for our sin. And the Bible says that when we believe in him, God can accept us, and that's imputation. And Jesus Christ, like David, stood in our place and took what we couldn't. And David saved his people at the risk of his life, but Jesus Christ saved his people at the cost of his life. And David went into the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus Christ went right into death. And this is the point of Easter, friends. When we gather in two weeks, and we're going to gather on Good Friday, and we do this on purpose, to look at Jesus again, going to the cross for us. And we come on Friday to see this again, to remind us again, because Sunday's coming. And on Sunday, we celebrate. And not just on Easter Sunday, but every Sunday. This is the Lord's Day. We come and we celebrate that Jesus is alive. That he conquered the grave. He's our champion. So don't be fooled into thinking that you can be David. He isn't there to try to motivate you. He's there to point you to the forever Savior. He doesn't come and say, hey guys, just, just, just follow my example and how you should be. Follow this. He doesn't do it. He's not an example for us. He's the champion. He's the Savior. He's the deliverer. And he points us to Jesus. Just this week, Andrew Peterson, who's a musical artist, released a song from his new album that's coming out right before Easter. And just a couple days ago, he released a song called, Is He Worthy? And in this song, he says, things that just encourage us, especially around the season of Easter. And he asks these questions in the song, do you feel the world is broken? Can you answer that? Yes. Do you feel the shadows coming? Do you believe that all the darkness won't stop from the light coming in? Do you wish you could see this world made new? Is all creation groaning? Is new creation coming? 
Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to conquer? Is anyone worthy? I want you to close your eyes as I read a section of Revelation. And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders of the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Is anyone worthy? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave, is worthy. He is David's root, our champion. And he's coming back for his bride, the church. And we long for his return. May it be soon. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious truth this is. We thank you, God, that we can come in, that we can step out of this world for just an hour and a half and to spend time worshiping you. And this time, God brings us refreshment. It brings us hope. We thank you that we can worship you. We can worship you as the one who has conquered death. And even as we read of the story in 1 Samuel 17, we can look to you. And we see that Jesus 
is our champion. He is the one who has conquered death. He is the one who has defeated sin. He is the one who has bought us back from the slave market of sin, that we could be redeemed, that we could be your children. And Father, we look forward to the day that we could see you face to face. Help us now as we leave this place to go back into this world and to share this glorious gospel to everyone that we come in contact with. You are worthy. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.